Welcome to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the breakthrough success coach and your powerful presence mentor. Welcome to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most. I'm your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the exponential success coach and the president of Dynamic Leader Incorporated. Today, welcome back to One Sharp Sword. Today, I've got an amazing guest. Uh, I learned a little bit about him, and when I found out that he comes at the stuff that I believe in so wholeheartedly, he comes at it from a different angle. I was like, yes, you can. It really pays to uh, learn from so many different perspectives. And so with me today, I've got Dr. Ravi Iyer. Uh, he's based in Virginia, uh, but that's not where he started. So Dr. Ravi, welcome. Welcome to One Sharp Sword. Good afternoon, Wayne. This is a pleasure to be out here. Thank you for having me. That's awesome. Um, so I I uh, open the show by saying that you and I teach similar things. We come at it very differently. You've got a medical degree. You've got um, you've got uh, patents out there, and really, your focus is on enhancing human potential in so many different ways. Can we talk about? Um, what you're currently doing, which is, I mean, we've just come out of the pandemic. You've got this book called The Reaper's Dance. Let's talk a little bit about what you're currently doing, and then we'll back up, the, we'll wind back the clock a little bit to, to just kind of see how you got to be where you are. Is that okay? Sure. Cool. So right now I'm engaged in two things which are connected but uh, separate in the way they manifest and uh, first and foremost i am taking uh, some time now to work on a book on neurodiversity uh, which is i'll loop back to it because it connects to me as a person also um, but um, so I'm working with uh, two extremely talented young ladies, and the three of us are co-authoring this book. Each of us working on different sections. I'm working on the section on ADHD. Um, the other two are working on autism and uh, sensory processing disorder. Wow. Um, so we are developed. Uh, we are developing the outline for it, and we're doing the background research. We, uh, in another two weeks, we will start our online uh, Zoom interviews with various uh, people who have been diagnosed with these personalities. Uh, you notice that I'm not calling them as disorders. I'm calling them as personalities. I noticed that. Great. <laughs> That's great. It really is. Yeah, it's difficult. Uh, the, we are so entrenched in this uh, deficiency-oriented uh, approach to behavior that uh, we are still get, get ourselves sucked into that kind of uh, terminology. And even I myself have to catch myself from time to time. Uh, but I still, I'm getting better at it. Well, I, uh, you know, I, I, my doctorate's in clinical psychology. and I know I, that. 
I took a turn out of traditional psychology because I didn't like having to pigeonhole, like, oh, you've just talked to this somebody. What's their DSM? What's their diagnostic and statistical manual diagnosis? It's like, yeah. How about okay. if they're human and they're working on it and they're getting better and better and we're going to leverage the strengths? How's that? Yeah, because the the psychiatric uh, American Psychiatric Association uh, is trying to classify conditions based on their reimbursement with insurances and Correct. insurances work on if is this a disorder that we are going to pay for or not? They're not going to work on something that is normal behavior. Exactly. <laughs> so so that is why DSM came about. So as long as you understand the context, but a lot of people who are fighting the activist role uh, can get quite passionately vocal about it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, the, um, so that's one side. And the other side is um, the pandemic exposed a whole bunch of insights into human thought process and human behavior that uh, I found my clinic very unique in its position that we were able to very successfully navigate and create a very empowering experience and space for all my patients. And then after the pandemic was kind of receded in the background, we I got to thinking that this is ridiculous that the whole world suffered uh, and we, we seem to do it well here. Why can I not take that message out there uh, instead of trying to deal with every patient one-on-one, -on -one, doing transformation of people on a one-on-one -on -one basis? I needed to find a platform to take my message one-on-many. Um, and I started this whole podcast. I started writing the book. I started writing, I started the podcast, but they're all dovetailing to the purpose of what I call the second act in my life. And that is, while I still continue to be a very active and successful and productive physician, my second act is about taking human potential and human empowerment and transformation to a larger stage and trying to to get this message across that's so great so you know one of the things i noticed about the pandemic is it put us absolutely in touch with our values because we were locked into we're going to see the same four walls for two years in a row we had you know prior to the pandemic we were told put down the put down the technology and go out and actually meet people. And during the pandemic, it was, well, you can't meet people. You've got to pick up the technology. Um, and it was not fulfilling. And what we came, I think, what we came face to face with was what we truly value in our lives, given that certain freedoms that we took for granted were taken away from us. What were you seeing in your clinic? Because I, I think it was a fascinating time that it really did. You used the word expose. I love that. It exposed so much about us as humans. What what kinds of things yeah. did you see? So the pandemic literally was, um, if you look at uh, from March 2020 all the way to maybe July 2021, uh, it was an intense, um, maybe 14 to 18 month experience of essentially the whole 
globe was put into an isolation tank. Yes. So alone so, together. Yes. Uh, this and it was a phenomenal global experiment because it uh, the I I mean people might get offended when I call it as a global experiment, but essentially for the first time the entire world all the operations stopped uh, yes. all conventional operations stopped and uh, then everyone came face to face with their own mortality in a very very immediate way and then the the third thing was that we were deprived of all the normal normalizing features of of relationships that is uh, individual contact, uh, general a touch, a little hug, a peck on the cheek, uh, being able to sit three feet away face to face and have a cup of coffee. Uh, all of these things which we uh, seamlessly rely on to establish connection were deprived of us. Uh, and so it was during this period that I realized that what I had created in my uh, uh, clinic was an ability to maintain connection without necessarily relying on physical contact. And I want to take a step here and show you how I happened to arrive at that spot. I did not know I had that skill until the pandemic hit, but I once it came, um, I became aware of how I happened to arrive at it. I, I want to know how you arrived at it and if it's something we can carry forward, even though we're not in the pandemic. Yes, yes. Perfect. And the first thing is, I was 58 years old. I'm 65 now. So I was seven years ago, I got diagnosed with ADHD. It was not something that came out of the blue. I always had it. I didn't know I had it. Growing up as a kid, uh, I struggled with this concept of with this difficulty of performing. While I would have teachers saying, Ravi is brilliant, he can do these things, he's but but he simply is not working to his potential. He's distracted, he's not able to. Um, and there were other things. I had a photographic memory, but and I would hyper-focus. I would take something and I would be reading so deep into it that people would have to come and physically shake me to make me available to them. My parents, my mom would very often be calling Ravi, 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 and I would not hear her at all until she actually came and touched me. And I would then say, huh, what? And I would I would be engrossed in a book. Sure. And so I this. So this unique conundrum that I had of this ability to hyper-focus, I had dyscalculia. So while I had this wonderful ability with language and metaphor and uh, ability to paint pictures with words, I had an abysmal uh, ability with numbers. I mean, I could do basic numbers, but math was completely foreign to me. And uh, if you are in India and you don't know math, 
you are automatically considered a moron. Uh, it did not help that in my family, we are a family of high-performing individuals. Uh, in my family, we have neurosurgeons, psychiatrists, world-renowned engineers, deans of universities, uh, investment bankers, merger and acquisition lawyers, road scholars. My daughter is a Fulbright fellow. So, you know, high performance runs in the family. So, so to be labeled as a small child that you are really not good at math was yeah. was pretty uh, pretty demoralizing. Well, it's devastating probably to you and to the family. Yes. Right? And it didn't help that my younger brother was good at it. <laughs> so so uh, so I struggled with all of that. I struggled with all of that and I happened to come across an interesting book uh, by a British author by the name of Paul Brunton. He wrote a book called Search and Secret Egypt. And in that, he is he's kind of a, uh, he, he dealt in the occult. So he was going into Egypt, trying to delve into the mysteries of the, of the pyramids and the uh, occult black magic of the Egyptian culture and so on and so forth. And I was fascinated by he spent a night in the pyramids uh, and he speaks of a vision he had of of floating out of having an out of body experience and very eloquent writer. So I, I was fascinated by the book. I read that. I was a teenager. I was about 14 at that time. And I immediately started practicing some of the exercises he was describing in the book. So I started doing that and I was playing around with it. Because one of the things I realized was when I started doing that, I found that the whirlwind of thoughts that would come in my head would quieten down a little bit. Oh, wow. And I suddenly say, felt that, hey, this is, a, this is a technique that I could do to prevent me from being so distracted all the time. I wasn't very good at it, but I started playing around, and I would not tell anybody, so I would just experiment quietly on my own side. Private time, I would go and hide in one place and then practice this, this meditative experience, trying to uh, pick one thought and just hone in on that one thought rather than anything. The fact that I had hyper-focus while reading allowed me to, I started applying the concept of visualizing the thought as a word and then delving into the word. Uh, this went on for a while. And then I saw a book called Search and Secret India by the same author. So I found that in the library. So I immediately picked that up and I started reading. And here he is describing his travels through India and finding various yogis and um, various saints around trying to discuss spirituality. And he describes one person in southern India that impressed him the most. And I was also pretty impressed. And that person described a, a method of mindful awareness of breath watching. 
And so I immediately started doing that. And in the process, I started acquiring more and more ability to watch my breath without the commentary that goes on in our heads. To cut a long story short, by the time I was um, a young college student, I was pretty skilled at this. And I started realizing that experience, our consciousness, our experience of life is based upon our consciousness. And our consciousness has two factors in it. One is our ability to experience, or to, the ability to perceive experience. And the second is to create a narrative out of it or a story out of it. And usually, I most people, they think about these two things as inseparable because they happen so fast and so close to each other that it is impossible to separate narrative from experience. But if you practice the breath-watching exercise long enough, you will have periods where you can actually experience experience without the narrative dominating it. And, and in those moments, I would experience a sense of expansive state of being that was free of judgment and free of definitions or, or classifications. And as I became go better and better at it, I found that I could go through my entire day with this undercurrent of awareness of just the experience where I could actually see the narrative as a separate thing that I could now begin to pick and choose which narratives I wanted to give power to. That's huge. As, as I went on, the years, this is this is not one or two days. We are talking, I started at 14. I started doing my breath exercises at around 17. By around 22, I was becoming good enough such that the, the ability to have an undercurrent of awareness of experience as separate from narrative would continue through my work. And as I started doing that, I found that I had the power to define which narrative I would pay attention to. Yes. Then came the next insight. The narratives we had are no more than thoughts that randomly rise. And every thought exists like a bubble in a heated cauldron of water. If you take this analogy of a heated cauldron of water, Every bubble is nothing but, a, but a, a, a blob of air surrounded by a film of water. The bubble requires that film of water for its existence. If you remove that film, the bubble collapses. Thoughts require awareness for their existence. If you are not conscious of that thought, the thought collapses. Mm -hmm. The minute I started realizing that you could have the ability to be in experience and pick and choose which thought you can direct your awareness to, I started being able to craft my life around me. Around 22, and at that time, 
my career started shooting forward because I was no longer less and less a victim of the random thoughts that would barrage me. I was more and more acquiring capacity to control which thoughts I would give power to. I was not always, it was not always happening, but I was happening more and more. And the reason why I bring this is this ability translated directly into my communication with people. In this process, as I became confident in my ability to define the narrative of my life, I began to extend that into my communications. When I, in my verbal communications, I started realizing that the power to communicate is not just saying something. When I say something, the person on the other side is only partially listening to what I'm saying. He's listening to what he is saying about what I'm saying. And the more I became powerful in controlling and picking and choosing which narratives I would give power to, the more I became sensitive to the narratives that were going on in my listener's head. Even though he may not have spoken, I could intuitively discern what was bouncing in his head as I was saying what I was saying. And automatically, my ability to not only give control over my narrative improved, my ability to shape the narrative of my listener improved. How did, how did you do that? Because, I mean... Because when you when you are in experience, you are in a space where, uh, you know, you are in a space of sensitivity. Yes. See, I call this the sensory cyclone of life. Life is nothing but a sensory cyclone. It's we, Our five senses have a constant barrage of stimulation coming in all the time, whether you like it or not. We are aware of those senses, sensory stimuli, that we direct our awareness to. If we don't direct our awareness, that sensory stimulus does not exist for us. Mm. I mean, we, people argue, yeah, it goes into your subconscious and that's why it pops up in your dream and all that. But even then, from a functional perspective, the majority of our sensory input is dependent on our awareness. But consider if you were aware of your own awareness, as apart from being aware of the sensory stimulation, you can then stay in that state of awareness of your own awareness and then decide which one of this whirlwind of sensory stimulation you can choose to play with right now. And at that moment, you go through life with an enormous lightness of being and, a, and an ability to literally play with life whichever way you choose. When you are talking to another person, that person is going to come into your space of reality. He becomes part of your experience. When you are open to experience, and this sounds like mumbo-jumbo and voodoo right now, but when you are skilled at it, what happens is you that person opens up in your space. 
you and he become connected. And in this space of connection, you don't need to sit three feet away from him. You don't need to hug him. You don't need to touch him. But you are connected and he feels connected. And it was this power that made all the difference during the pandemic for my patients. When I, the reason why I am a top doctor and why I'm so good as a physician is when I walk into the room, I can connect with people just like this all the time. Mm -hmm. But I didn't start off wanting to do this. I started off trying to gain control over the storm in my own head. When I was born and I was uh, with my ADHD, I, I, by the time I was diagnosed with ADHD at 58, I had already become skilled at this. And even though my psychiatrist friend who diagnosed me gave me a month's worth of Adderall, after that, you know, I too, did took it for a month. And the first day I, I was convinced that, man, this is phenomenal. It is like all my life I was living life in, in this glass cage with a million butterflies around my head. Mm. And now suddenly somebody gave me a blue pill and the, all these butterflies have just settled down. And I can see for the first time. I no longer have to fight my vision through the storm. But after a month of it, I said, you know, I really don't need this anymore. And I stopped to using it. So, but that was an experiment that proved to me that I did have ADHD. Sure. And, but at 58, I no longer need, I had already, my own experiments with, with consciousness had with neuronal plasticity, I, I had shaped my, my networks enough to be different. You are listening to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with your host, Dr. Wayne Purnell. You know you are bigger than the life you are leading. It really is time to attend to that thing you've wanted to do or have, but you've been putting off. It's time to step into that dream you've parked for someday. It's time to claim true well-being, both personally and professionally, without giving up the success that got you here. It's time to check out Dr. Purnell's signature small group retreat, the Exponential Success Summit. Explore ExponentialSuccessSummit.com. Seats are extremely limited as this is a very special small group event www.exponentialsuccesssummit.com. If any of our audience members want to practice this, I mean, part of what you're talking about is the practice of mindfulness. Can you become aware only of what's in front of you? Can you then become aware of your awareness? So sort of that separation of actor being in the moment, observer watching the person in the moment yourself. Yes. How would you guide somebody to want to, to step into that? Because this affects, it's interesting. This seems to be a, a theme. It affects everything. Yeah. It's, it affects everything. And you can, and if you are skilled at this, you become successful at anything. You, it's true. So, so how do you guide? Because I believe that exactly, that if you're skilled at this, you can become exceptional at anything yes. how do you guide somebody who's like my mind is is just worrying you know and it's like how do how do you ground somebody and is that through breath at first or is that yeah 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 i mean i love the way you say how do you ground it I, this is exactly this is how it's called being grounded and uh, 
The, it's why it's why I have you here. Thank you. The uh, the the ability to ground, just like bicycle riding, you need training wheels, and you won't have balance. You will oscillate from side to side initially, but you start by watching your breath. You don't try to control it. You don't try to make it go fast or slow. You don't try to worry about it. All you do is watch the way, the tide of your breath. I call it the tide of your breath. And you watch that breath and try to follow it as it goes into your chest. And you take a note. Take note of the deepest point in your chest where it goes. Um, and you watch it and you can feel the breath going through your nose and you can feel the coolness in the back of your nose into the back of your throat. And then you can feel the breath going cool into your chest and you get a sense that somewhere out here, you know, somewhere out here it stops. And then it starts the outward flow. So the inward flow goes in, it stops at that point and then you, it starts flowing out. So you ride the tide of your breath. You you know, it's, you ride it, you oscillate on this tide and you flow out with it. And then again, you flow out to the back of your nose into, into the tip of your nose. And then you follow it outside your body and notice how far outside your body it goes. And you follow this breath and you'll feel, you'll get a sense that it goes somewhere again at this roughly the same level outside your chest that it went inside. So, Take a note of the end point again there and then follow again. And you keep doing this. So initially when you do this, you will do this a few times and immediately a thought will come up and it will grab your attention and take it away. And you will drift along in that thought, but that will merge into another thought and then another thought, another thought, and suddenly you'll wake up. So what was I doing? Where am I? Oh, I sure was watching my breath. Oh, let me go back. And you watch yes. your breath again. So initially, you will have this, you will have maybe one second of attention to your breath and maybe about 30 seconds of distraction. Yes. And then that one second will become two seconds and it will be 28 seconds of distraction. Like that. And it will slowly, you will develop skill. Mind you, this is not going to happen immediately. I It took me I'm talking, I started this, I'm 65 years old now, and I'm talking 51 years of work. All yes. right, I started at 14. <laughs> so <laughs> so there's, there's a couple keys here, because one is, it doesn't matter how old you are, start paying attention. I think, you know, in, in talking with you and others who have, uh, done Ayurvedic work and yoga and, and such. Most people, in my experience, most people aren't even aware of breath flow. And so just taking a moment to understand that as you draw in, there is a place where your breath lands. And as you expel, I hadn't thought about that till you just said it, as you expel the, the breath, there's also a place where that lands. And I love the concept of tide because that's very visual. That's yes. very visual. And so this 
this flow of breath comes in and and goes out it's it's beautiful so and this is not anybody this, can start like that's the whole key. anybody can it's a, you don't have to start 51 years ago you can start now you know like so it is also very safe to be done without the guidance of a master so that's one more thing because you can uh, breath certain breath exercises can produce problems uh, in your biology. So you don't want to go down that road. But um, this is a safe one. This is also a very ancient method. It's called, there is a book in Kashmiri Shaivism called Vigyana Bhairava Tantra. Um, the, it consists of 151 uh, dharanas or methodologies. There are 151 meditative de techniques described in that. This is one of those called Dwadashanta. Dwa means two. Dasha means ten. Antaha means end. So, the breath is said to travel 12 finger breaths into your chest and flow out 12 finger breaths outside. So it basically means, Dwadashanta means the end point of 12 finger breaths. Interesting. All right. And you can do it. You can do it. It's 12. Uh, it's right here. Right. So from the tip of your nose, it's 12 finger breaths. <laughs> and uh, so uh, the the other interesting thing about this is when you do this, once you go beyond a certain point and you start developing the ability to remain concentrated and aware of the flow of your breath, you will become less and less distracted. And then as you become less and less distracted, you will find your awareness beginning to oscillate instead of going in this U-shaped trajectory from outside to in and inside to out. You will find your awareness oscillating between the inner endpoint and the outer endpoint. That's it. That's amazing. And, and in that space, you will just feel you will just be there oscillating between the inner endpoint and the outer endpoint. And at certain points, at certain times, unbidden and unasked, you will lose awareness of your body, but you will remain aware of this oscillation. I don't want to go further into it because then no. it becomes very voodoo-like. <laughs> well, it's a um, it's a very but, altered it's an altered state at that point. It's an altered state, Which... and in but the beauty of that is what uh, you know how people take psilocybin. Yes, and then they experience this altered state of consciousness where they are expansive. You experience an expansion at that time. Yes. So without a psilocybin, you can induce a state of expansive connectivity with your surroundings in this. The next stage is when you are when you can go into this at will without interrupting the other activities of your life. 
So other activities keep moving on. You do it, but you can be in this awareness of this inner outer point. And when you start communicating with people, when you are in that space, the other person gets connected automatically. You don't need to connect that person. They become connected. And in that connection, heart speaks to heart. Beautiful. And you can transform. What, whatever words you do, impact. Now, one of the questions I've had when I describe this to people is, this sounds like you become almost, you have hypnotic power over people. No, I don't. You cannot, you when you're doing this, you cannot act to the to be damaging or controlling of the other person. Right. This is very interesting. People think that they can do this and gain control over their environment or, or around people. You don't. Because when you do this, you lose your sense of self. So there is no person to control. Rather, you actually become connected and you become one person. So how can you act to the other person's disinterest? You this don't. Is true. Uh, let so me... you, are, you automatically become moral at that point. That's all that exists, is that is that connected morality. Yes. The, uh, I understand this, which is which is fabulous and fascinating to me. The uh, a, a lot of people think that the mind is the brain. And what you're describing is the mind is actually the extension of yourself. And that the connectivity is the loss, the loss of ego, Correct. right? So Correct. that you are only connected, um, and that you can do this and achieve this through breath, is it's fascinating, it's amazing, and um, it's actually it's it's quite exciting because. There are people, you know, everyone does this. Everyone do has an experience of loss of body consciousness. Yeah. Everyone who has ever had an orgasm has experienced it. They lose body consciousness. This is the reason why everyone wants to get an orgasm. Everyone, all the bungee jumpers experience it because what yeah. happens, what happens when there is a threat to life automatically narrative stops. See, yeah. narrative, see, this ability to have a narrative is a survival mechanism that has evolved for the preservation of the body. And I'll, I'll explain to you why that is so. When your and my ancestral caveman was walking the woods of Jurassic Park, and let's say he ever happened to see Tyrannosaurus Rex, came face to face with Tyrannosaurus Rex. And let's say that he managed to survive that. He ran away and he was able to successfully run away. The next time the ground shakes and the trees shake, the narrative of run is already programmed in him because he will never again wait to see Tyrannosaurus Rex. The experience of Tyrannosaurus Rex is now dominated by the narrative run. 
And that narrative is built out of the snapshot of that environment in which that first experience was created. We create, our minds create narratives to navigate the unpredictability of life. Because we always don't know what's going to happen the next five minutes. And we are always trying to position ourselves such that we have some advantage in how we're going to negotiate the next five minutes. That This is key. I want to uh, just want to pause you here for a second, because I think this is this is key in terms of why people's minds are are whirling all the time is what's the next five minutes what's the next five weeks what's the next you know and five the days pandemic, five weeks, five years. the pandemic was terrifying for just that one reason we couldn't predict it right yes yes yeah it was that it's it's so great i you know i i did a couple of episodes talking about we prove to ourselves great courage we uh, you know, you make this gesture and the things come up on the screen. We prove to ourselves great courage. We prove to ourselves great resilience. Uh, we we proved that we could rely on ourselves um, and bounce back and and not have to know every single step along the way that that it was a an, a very unpredictable time and we relied on ourselves and we got through it. So the ability to stand in experience gives you patience, gives you faith, gives you the ability to not want to know the next five minutes because you no longer are invested in tomorrow. You are invested in now. That's so great. So that is the other thing. And when you walk, you walk with a, such a grounded sureness that you radiate that safety. And the people who come into your ambit get automatically grounded by your presence. They feel safe in front of you. They see, feel safe around you. And when they feel safe around you, they are willing to listen to what you say. They are willing to follow your directions. You are willing to consider the options you give them. And you, in turn, give only the options that are best for their well-being because you and they are one. So it, it is probably the ability to get grounded is probably the only thing that is required for success in any field of human endeavor. It doesn't matter. That's a powerful statement. Right? It is. The ability to get grounded is the is really the foundational element for success. Correct. Fabulous. You know, and when you are in that state, then, you know, even, even scriptural uh, verses like uh, the Psalm of David, where he says, the Lord is my shepherd and I, I shall not want. That is a coming from a state of grounding. That is not, where he feels that he doesn't need to worry about what's going to happen because I the experience of this moment is all there is and it, whatever is going to come is going to come okay <laughs> that's so good it's so good um let's uh let's talk about how people can find out more let's talk about the book and books let's talk about um 
So you know, it, uh, was there anything that we left out? Because there, I feel like there's you know three hours of material here, if not more. Yes, yes um, <laughs> maybe three months of material here. So, um, we, we you know, I just that. I want to be aware of our time together and and give you a chance to talk about how people can learn more about you and about the work you're doing. Well, I, my my website is uh, www dot I can put that up in the chat. I think hey, where's the chat? I got it. You you won't need to because yeah. it's the chat is just for me as part of our Zoom. So yeah. So it's drir.com. Yeah. It's, and uh I'll have it in the show notes for those that are yeah. listening or watching. Yeah. Right. And uh, uh you know everything I do, whether coming to my clinic or whether all my podcasts are linked in that website uh the reapers dance which where i talk about our journey through covid uh, there are a lot of books on covid but uh, the one that uh, reapers dance is about the human aspect of covid the people who are affected by it how did they live through it so uh so in that sense uh, it is uh, it is quite unique in its approach. And also we talk about how ordinary people rose to the challenge. Um, I'm working on a book on neurodiversity, like I said earlier. I can't wait for that. Uh, yeah. There are so yeah. many people that I would give that to. Yeah. And I'm trying to actually, we are trying to craft that book with uh, the human stories of it. But we wanted to craft it with strategies that will allow people to get the most value out of diversity in teams at work. So how do you how do you create a high performing team composed of neurodiverse and neurotypical people? How do you create a, a company that can uh, can be successful in its projects or in its uh, products uh, and meet deadlines? When you, despite the knowledge that there are certain people in your team who don't work well with deadlines, who won't work well with uh, with uh, certain forms of meetings, uh, you know, how do you get the best out of them? Because they do have, there is a best in them. Uh, and, uh, and, and and as leaders, it's our job to find that best. And so, yes, being able so, to have certain tools will help. So, uh, like in my clinic, I am I have ADHD. My uh, front desk uh, person, she's wonderful in many things, but she has a little bit of dyslexia. <laughs> and she, um, uh, I have a, a nurse who is uh, extremely sensitive, high sensitivity person. She will empathize so deeply with every every patient, and um, so so, and we we together combine into a phenomenal team by accommodating everyone's uh, quirks. So when people come to you, what do they come to you for mostly? Is it a, well, is it a general clinic? Yeah, or? it's a, we are a general internal medicine clinic. Okay. So people come for sore throats, uh, but, but everyone has something deeper than just their immediate presenting problem. Right. Symptoms and, are just that. Yeah. And and there's something beyond that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. 
So the the so one of the things we do is we always focus on what's the real question. The real question is always the unasked question, and it's always how do I live my life with whatever has befallen me? How do I go forward into life with the problems that I have right now? And as a physician, I do only three things. Either I eliminate the problem or I reduce its impact. Or if I can't do either of those two, then I help people live with the problem. Good. Yeah. This is great. This is really great. So I will send people via our show notes to dryer.com. D-R-I-Y-E-R.com. Your book is there. Your forthcoming book, we can't wait to have it. Uh, Any last words or suggestions for our audience? Do the mindful awareness exercise. You will unleash wealth in your life. (laughs) That's amazing. That's really great. If nothing else, just like the awareness of of awareness. I mean, that's a... That's if you've never experienced that, that is something that is so special just to be in that state. So amazing. Amazing. I'm so glad you came. I'm so glad to to have you here on One Sharp Sword. Dr. Ravi Iyer, thank you for being here. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It is a pleasure. Thank you. All right. My guest today, Dr. Ravi Iyer, you will find him at dryer.com. I will put that in the show notes. This is one sharp sword cutting through to what matters most. I'm Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the exponential success coach and the president of Dynamic Leader Incorporated. Please uh, take a breath, literally take a breath. Uh, Practice some of the things that Dr. Ayers suggested. Please like and share this episode and we will see you here next time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the breakthrough success coach and your powerful presence mentor.